This morning, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Um, if you can find a, a printed text, that'd be great, because we're going to be covering actually quite a bit of material this morning, and, and so you'll be able to look and see what we're up to. Each and every one of us belong to a family. Families of, of different kinds, and actually I think in some ways the, the family that we exist in and are a part of is, is bigger than we might first acknowledge or think about. Right? We have sort of our, our ancestry, the people we have descended from. We have our parents' families, our mother and father's families. We have families that we marry into, in-laws. We have close friends in our lives that function in many ways like a family to us or parts of our family. And we have you know, things like our church family that, that come uh, to, to sort of come around us and, and inform our sense of, of who we are and who we belong to. Family is this kind of complex web of relationships that create our sense of of who we are, our identity. And in in each maybe context or part of that web, there may be different understandings about what it means to belong. Maybe you feel in certain contexts there are things expected of you to be part of that family. Maybe from different parts of that web, you feel there are gifts given to you or or support given to you as part of belonging to that family. And so each one of us sort of is navigating all of these these different spaces and communities, right, in in trying to make sense of of who we are and what we're about. As we come to the scriptures this morning, I think the the conviction not only of Matthew's gospel, but of all four gospels, is that Jesus comes as someone to help us navigate what it means to belong in a family, and specifically what it means to belong in, in two particular aspects of family. The first is the family of humanity, right? Jesus comes, the scriptures testify, as a fully human person enters fully into our our incarnate sense of reality. And he does so, I think, so that that we can identify with Jesus in our humanity as well. And part of the story of our humanity is that we are are broken. Part of our our story of humanity is that we're limited. Part of the the story of our humanity is that we're separated in 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 an important sense from a different dimension of family, and that's the family of God, our relationship with who God is. What we we also believe is that as human beings, we're meant to be in relationship with a God who is three persons, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. That we were actually created by that God, made in in God's image to, to enjoy relationship with him. And so we could go all the way back to Genesis 1 and see both the the goodness of that intention, but also then how things come apart in Genesis 3 and beyond. And so each and every person is is seeking to understand what it means to both be part of of our family and our our humanity, but also what it means to be brought back into relationship with God. Last week, we, we moved through Matthew 1, 2, and 3. 
And in Matthew 3, we heard John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness and proclaiming to the people to, to, to repent, to prepare, to, to enter into this baptism of confession of sin and repentance so that they could make ready for what God was about to do, for the person God was about to send after John. And at the very end of Matthew 3 last week, we saw Jesus appear. Appear with John by the Jordan in this, this act of baptism. And we said that as, as Jesus did that, he was bringing into fulfillment the, the fullness of what God had prepared to do in all of creation, in all of history, in all of time. There was a, a filling, a fulfilling taking place in that moment as Jesus entered the waters of baptism. And we said that, that two things happened, two important things happened when Jesus chose to receive John's baptism. The first was the miracle of Jesus' humility. We said that Jesus, Jesus entered into a baptism of, of confession of sin and repentance, not because he had sin to confess, but because he desired to identify fully with us in our humanity, in our brokenness, in our great need to be restored to relationship with God. You okay? Jesus enters into those waters to, to identify fully with our humanity. But we said that when Jesus entered those waters of baptism, he also transformed them. And that as Jesus emerged from that baptism, right, the heavens were parted, the Spirit came to rest upon Jesus and and the voice of God the Father spoke over Jesus in that moment and said, this is my son who I love and in whom I am well pleased. And so we see Jesus is, is coming down fully into our humanity, but also then coming up out of those waters to show us what it looks like to be God's true son, God's true sons and daughters to be drawn back up into that perfect relationship with our Father. So this morning, as we move into Matthew chapter 4, I want us to keep all that in mind as kind of a backdrop. Because I think Matthew chapter 4 has a lot to say about how we are joined to Jesus as the true Son. And how we ourselves begin to live as God's true daughters and sons. Because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus does. Let me pray for us as we open up to Matthew 4. Jesus, there's so much to who you are that we need help, not just mentally understanding. Lord, we need help for this gospel to be good news to us, to be applied to our hearts, to be applied to the complexity of, of all the relationships that we navigate as persons so that we might live from a place of fullness, of healing, and of wholeness. So Lord, I pray as I preach this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing in your sight. Would your spirit come and help us in this work of proclamation, of application, and of obedience? It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.
me read to you from the first part of Matthew 4. So Jesus has gone into the waters of baptism. He's come up from those waters proclaimed as the true Son of God. And then immediately thereafter, we see Jesus led into the wilderness. Verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem. And he had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, right? the devil's playing Jesus' game here. It's written, God will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered the devil, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God. And serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to Jesus. There is a, a testing that takes place here at the beginning of Matthew 4. A testing, I think, of Jesus' sonship. And there, there's so much to unpack in these verses, right? This could not only just be the entirety of my message this morning, there could be a whole series of sermons just preached about the testing and tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. And you've probably heard many in the past. But I want to highlight something that I think significant is important for us to understand about this passage so that we, we get a sense of what this testing, what the significance of this testing is for, what it represents. To anyone reading Matthew's gospel in its original form, his original audience, most of whom were, were Jews of the first century, they would have immediately understood that this testing of Jesus in the wilderness is totally bound up with the story of Israel's past. Jesus is sent into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights because Israel, previous to Jesus, was sent into the wilderness and endured a 40-year period of testing there. In fact, so much of Jesus' identity, why Jesus does what he does, why we're told about Jesus the way we are in Matthew's Gospel, has to do with Israel's story. If you don't understand what Israel did back in the Old Testament, you won't understand what Jesus is up to in this Gospel. But Jesus has just been declared the Son, the true Son, the beloved Son of God. What does that have to do 
with Israel's time in the wilderness. Well, way back in the book of Exodus, as God was preparing to deliver Israel from Pharaoh's oppression, to bring them out into a place of promise, he told Moses, as he was preparing Moses to go before the Pharaoh, he said, go before Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh this, Israel is my firstborn son. Collectively, as a people, they are my firstborn son. So let him go into the wilderness, into the desert, so that he might worship me. And of course, Pharaoh is resistant to that message, and there's a back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, and and God sends the plagues upon Pharaoh because of his hardness of heart. And eventually, God delivers the Israelites from Pharaoh's hand. He leads them miraculously through the, the Red Sea. He brings them into the wilderness of Sinai, where we're told that God desired to make them his special people, his treasured possession. But we know that once they arrive there at Mount Sinai, things don't go smoothly, let's say. Right? The remainder of the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy tells the story of how Israel struggled to live out of this identity as God's son, as God's chosen people, as God's beloved people, as his sons and daughters. And that when hunger came upon the people of Israel, or danger threatened the people of Israel, or or they began to remember their old life back in Egypt, right? We're told that they raged against God. They cursed God. They turned back to idols that they had worshipped in the past. And so for 40 years, they wandered and they waited for that fullness of of what God had promised them, to be his people in a new way, in a new land. So fast forward, we're now here in Matthew's gospel. Again, God has just revealed that Jesus is, is the fullness of what it means to be a child of God in those waters of baptism. And now it says Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to endure the same kind of testing Israel experienced way back when they came out of Egypt, right? Jesus was hungry. Jesus was tempted. Idols are put in front of Jesus to pull him away from that new sonship that's just been revealed. And notice that the devil's strategy in in trying to pull Jesus away and and trying to test this idea that Jesus is God's true son, is to to put before him this idea that Jesus' sonship is conditional. Look how many times Satan uses if-then language in this passage. If you are the son of God, Jesus, tell God he needs to feed you. If you are the son of God, Tell him to rescue you. If you are the son of God, tell him to give you whatever you want. To the devil's thinking, worship and sonship and relationship with God is predicated on conditions. Where we do one thing so that God will do something in return. It's an if 
and then kind of relationship. But is that what it means to be the true son of God? Is that what it means for us to be sons and daughters of God? Is it about conditions? And depending on the family that we grew up in, maybe depending on the church families that we've worshipped alongside of, some of, of this way of thinking has probably seeped into our bones, seeped into who we are. We may have come to think about God as someone we need things from and who expects certain things from us in return. And we get into this this cycle of of trying to meet God's expectations or to, to satisfy him in some way, to gain his sense of approval. Seeking after God's blessing in some way. I think Jesus wants to show us a different way. What if, what if God is the kind of God and Father who truly loves us? Someone who actually created us for relationship with us, who enjoys being with us and desires our well-being even more than his own. What if God is like that? What if he's not a God of manipulation? What if he loves us in a way that is unconditional? And so we see in the way Jesus responds here. The way Jesus defines his sonship is is to reject it as a kind of entitlement. He rejects the idea of playing games with God. And instead, Jesus doubles down on this idea that his sonship is about a relationship of trust and dependence. Jesus says, I live by the words my father says about me. I don't need to test that. I'm free to worship and serve God. Because whatever trials, whatever tests come Jesus' way, Jesus knows that his sonship, his identity as God's beloved son is never in question. It's never in doubt. It's It's not conditional. It's not dependent on something Jesus does or doesn't do. Jesus knows the absolute fact of his father's love toward him. And it's that foundation that allows Jesus to withstand this testing. Not because of of what Jesus did or a standard he measured up to, but of his absolute confidence in God's love for him. His trust in God. And armed with that, it says in verse 11, that the devil has nothing left to throw at him. The devil departs from him. The devil's schemes are emptied of their power in the view of this unconditional love. And so then Jesus moves from that place testing, and he is free to go about his mission, starting in verse 12. And Jesus' mission is going to be bringing you and I, bringing the rest of creation into this understanding of what it means to be true sons and daughters. Look at verses 12 and following. It says, after this time of testing, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed Jesus. Matthew, I think, is, is describing this, this full sonship of Jesus kind of coming into a new era. A new day is dawning. And so after those 40 days and 40 nights of being tested in the wilderness, this, this passage is like a sunrise coming up. Or maybe more precisely, the rising of God's true son right, coming to his people. The unveiling of the, the glorious brightness of who Jesus is. And yet again, Matthew wants to connect it back to Israel's story. He wants to show us through scripture that Jesus is this fulfillment of everything that has been promised by God. And so he quotes from Isaiah 9. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned on them. And in many ways, we're told by, by Matthew that the rising of Jesus' ministry coincides with the setting of John the Baptist. Right? John is imprisoned by Herod. Eventually, John is going to lose his life to Herod. But Jesus comes at that moment, and, and he takes on John's mission. In many ways, he inherits, and he begins to fulfill what John has been doing all along. And notice in verse 17 that Jesus' primary message is actually John's old sermon. Right? As, as Jesus comes and brings the glory of, of his good news to Galilee, he says exactly what John said back in chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's, it's here, it's among you, it's close at hand. Which I think is a reminder to us that, that John's message, the message of repentance, is a gospel practice. It's this idea of, of turning our lives over, of reorienting our lives, of making space in our lives to welcome in the fullness of what Jesus desires to do. The fullness of all the things that God's kingdom loves and we do not. But we're preparing ourselves, we're attaching ourselves, we're saying yes to what Jesus has brought in his fullness. Not only does Jesus borrow John's old sermon, but Jesus actually comes and begins to collect John's old disciples. And the first one he goes after, verse 18 says, is Andrew. 
who we know from the other gospel writers was, was one of John, John's sort of protégés. And he finds Andrew there beside the waters of the Galilee. He finds him back at home, fishing, carrying out his, his vocation. And Jesus says to him, come and follow me. And I think this is actually a beautiful picture of what his message of repentance means. Repentance just doesn't mean just feeling sorry or, or being convicted of sin. Repentance means radically turning our lives toward Jesus in a new way. And so Andrew and then his brother Simon and then these other sons of Zebedee, right, as they say yes to this invitation, they are modeling repentance for us. They are turning away from one way of living and turning toward Jesus in a new way. I think repentance is knowing that when Jesus, the true Son of God, the true light of God, comes to us, when he finds us, when he comes to where we are, and he invites us to live into this new way of being human, repentance means saying yes to that with everything we have. Turning, turning the keys of our life over to Jesus so that we might experience this, this new way of being. And so one by one, these, these brothers, these four, two sets of brothers, these four men, turn their lives over to Jesus. They turn away from their nets full of fish, and they turn toward whatever, whatever Jesus would fill them with instead. A couple things I want to say briefly about that choice this call of discipleship that we see unfolding here. I think discipleship is at its core a learning from Jesus what true sonship means. Discipleship is, is learning what it means to be a true son or a true daughter of God and how that, that sort of comes out into every dimension of who we are and how we live. And so there's, there's a radical nature to this, right? There's a leaving behind. There's a reprioritization that happens here where everything else becomes secondary. And Jesus becomes primary. They say goodbye to their fathers and they say yes to Jesus who will lead them into a new understanding of who their father truly is. But while there's a, a radical reorientation that takes place, there's also an element of continuity that Matthew wants us to see here. That when Jesus calls us to follow him, who we are in the past grows into something even greater in that future. Right? These are four fishermen. They, they have spent their lives understanding that vocation, that trade. That's their work. That's their passion. That's their experience. And yet when Jesus calls them, he doesn't abolish that. He doesn't say, get rid of that part of who you are. He says, redirect it toward my kingdom. He says, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men in my mission. And so as we say yes to our sonship in Jesus, right? God has a way of integrating all of who we are, all of who, of who we have been, all the things that have, have been central to us, 
reintegrating them and, and redeveloping them into that life of discipleship so that those things aren't wasted, but that they grow into a deepening sense of fullness. So we have Jesus here, revealed as the true Son of God, having withstood the tests of the devil, going out into the Galilee and calling people to be in community with him, to follow him into this new life. And as chapter 4 closes, we see that Jesus is out there not just preaching that, that God's kingdom was, was coming one day or just to get ready for God's kingdom, but we start to see that the realities of God's kingdom are actually pouring out of Jesus in a here and a now kind of way. Look with me at verses 23 through 25. It says that Jesus then went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria to the north, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, which is this whole region around the Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem and Judea to the south, and even the region across the Jordan, followed Jesus. I think these last few verses illustrate for us what the ministry of Jesus' sonship looks like in action, in practice. And in verse 23, we're given this sort of threefold description of what Jesus has come to do. As he goes throughout the Galilee, he does three things. First, it says that, that he teaches the people. He goes into the synagogue and he opens up the scriptures in a new way, in a deeper way. He reveals and, and brings understanding to the word of God, to the people. Second thing it says that Jesus does is he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, which I think is more than just knowledge or content, right? It, it's a proclamation. It's, it's like a, a, a crying out, a, a bringing of news that I think is directed at, at the heart. It's directed at the relationship of the human being with God. And it says that, that something new has come, that something powerful has come, and and that change is possible, that there's a reordering of things. That God is for us in a powerful way. And thirdly, it says that as Jesus goes through the Galilee, he also begins to heal physical bodies, human disease, sickness, oppression of the human spirit. So I think we could say that in these three dimensions, Jesus is ministering to the whole of who we are as human beings. He ministers to our minds and our intellects. He ministers to our emotions and our relationships. And he cares for us as embodied people. There's no part of our human reality that the sonship of Jesus doesn't touch, doesn't affect Jesus' ministry is expansive. It's, it's comprehensive. 
And I've, I've experienced the ministry of Jesus in all three of these dimensions, in different ways and at different seasons of my life, depending on where I have needed that ministry most fully. And I don't, I don't think there is a formula to explain how Jesus releases this, this healing ministry, this teaching ministry, this proclamation of good news ministry to us as individuals. All I can say is that the conviction of Scripture and the experience of the church throughout history is that God moves through his Spirit in these ways. That Jesus cares for us and he desires for us to come to him with our brokenness, with our longing, with our hunger, and to meet us in that place. And to trust in his unconditional love toward us. It's not an if-then. It's not a conditional kind of release of God's love for us. It's God coming to be present to us where we are. And ministering to us in that way.